This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings, listeners. We're back with the October episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm Ezzie Pearson, the magazine's news editor, and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. And staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Guy Consolmagno, director of the Vatican Observatory and writer of popular astronomy guide Turn Left at Orion. And we'll tell you our top stars gazing tip of the month. But now we're going to be taking a look at what we found out whilst we've been putting together the October edition of the magazine. So, Ian, what have you found this month? Well, I've been looking at the, the news section because it's been quite an interesting few weeks, or kind of an interesting few months, actually, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of, the, one of the biggest stories of the past few weeks was the uh, discovery of, well, the definitive discovery of um, water ice on the moon. Mm. Um, it, I suppose this, this must have come, come as a big shock to some people, but um, there has been kind of evidence mounting over the past decade or so. NASA's L-Cross and India's Chandrayaan-1 missions, for example, in 2008-2009, they, they kind of did a lot of uh, exa- examinations of the moon, including firing uh, impactors onto the lunar surface and then analysing the plumes that kind of flew up um, in the aftermath. Um, and they found evidence of, of water particles. But this is the first definitive um, detection of water ice on the moon made by um, the M-Cube mission, which was uh, a NASA mission, which was actually on the uh, Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft. Um, mm. in 2008, but they've kind of re-looked at the data and um, were able to use infrared to analyse the kind of shiny material on the on the moon and determine that it was water. Mm. Um, Finding water all over the place oh. this month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was Mars last month, now it's the moon. Yeah. I mean, it's not puddles though, is it? It's not kind of uh, puddles of water that astronauts can go and splash in. 
<laughs> no, it's uh, water, water ice at the pools because mm-hmm. um, it's kind of sufficiently cold enough there. But I mean, I think sometimes whenever big discoveries happen, you have to kind of read a bit more to discover just exactly what the implications are. But water ice on the moon, I mean, the implications are kind of self-evident, really, aren't they? Especially, you know, considering um, recent talk of future missions to the moon or establishing lunar bases, you can imagine. It's it's one of those things that people have been hoping to find on the moon because if you've got water, one, you've got something for your astronauts to drink, but also because you can split it into oxygen and hydrogen, which is essentially rocket fuel. Mm. Um, so I know there's quite a lot of people who want to turn, you know, sort of the moon into a petrol station where you stop off before you jump off and go over to Mars or something. Refueling. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. food slightly better than the uh, Granada services. Uh, I don't. Yeah. But if you, most astronauts tend to have pretty good food these days. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just wonder what the, what 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 the actual energy required would be to you know to turn the um, to turn the ice water and to harvest it and to turn it into mm. liquid yeah. water and then potentially, as you say, as into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, well, I think they have the advantage of that because on the moon there's no. Um, uh, there's there's no atmosphere or anything. So the sun's actually really bright. Mm. Um, and so once you've got it out of the ground, I know that um, people who are planning on mining asteroids, what they're planning on doing is just literally using the sun's light to bake it out. Mm. Um, I think some of them are basically, it's, you know, like you have those camping stoves, which are basically just like a giant mirror. Yeah. It's kind of like like a space-sized version of that is what I understand. It would be quite easy, wouldn't it, to yeah. kind of uh, collect... The, the big scooping up of the mm. of the areas where this yeah. where this um, the ice because it's a mix of in with the regolith the lunar yeah. soil mm. so you could scoop that up and then just put it in your in your big dish cook mm. it under the sun for a bit and collect all the um, all the sublimed gas that just comes off there yeah and, and then you know I could see a system of pipes you know like a kind of still. <laughs> um, but obviously not not creating kind of you know the whisk, the water of life but well literally the water of life but you know but creating water that way condensing it out from from its from its gaseous form mm. yeah. Um, yeah but yeah probably it could be quite energy efficient yeah, stills on the moon which yeah. is just just for water just for water yeah nothing else sure I'm sure that no astronauts would have any other kind of still um. <laughs> absolutely not. Well, on on the topic of the moon, uh, this month I was looking at Apollo 7, uh, which is because it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 7 mission um, this October. And it was the first crewed mission of the Apollo in in the Apollo hardware to to, to go into space. Um, It didn't actually go to the moon. It stayed in orbit around the Earth. Um, It was the only crewed mission to, to stay in orbit. All the other ones did actually go to the moon. And it's it's actually it, for, for considering they didn't go very far. It was quite an exciting mission. They had mm, to yeah. um, try all of these things out that they never tried before. So the the sort of engines that they needed to to, to get themselves to the moon, uh, the docking procedure, which apparently didn't go very well because the thing didn't open properly, mm. and they said it looked kind of like an angry alligator because <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. they were trying to get it in. Yeah. Um, but I think probably one of the the sort of most interesting things about the mission was um, actually, as we were talking about, you know, sort of lunar astronauts, mm. um, the astronauts on the Apollo 7 were not happy with the mission. They ended yeah. up getting a yeah. cold 
And yeah. I was reading through the transcripts of the mission and it's just the most snarky back and forth between mission control and these three astronauts in space. Mm. Oh dear. Yeah. But then they had to turn yeah. on the smiles for the for the broadcast. Yeah, it was it, the first filming in space, wasn't it? From from orbit, wasn't it? It's, yeah. They had to do it, didn't they? It's, it's they, one of those oh. things that people didn't know that there was all this sort of like conflict behind the scenes until sort of decades after the yeah. event when they released the transcripts. Yeah. Um, but I, I read a quote when in your feature as that you wrote for the uh, for the October issue and um it was like that they'd requested one and a half hours sleep and didn't get it or something that just can't yeah they they one crazy. of the big things that they actually complained about um um was that the food was rubbish yeah um, which they said was their own fault because they chose stuff that was really sugary mm. um which is um, if you've if you've had you know like a lot of sugary food it's fine for like a couple of bites but when you're eating it all day every day for 10 days does start to grate. Yeah. Um, mm. And also, yeah, that that they were not getting enough sleep. You know, they, they were just saying they weren't even getting, you know, let alone solid eight hours. They were lucky to get five. Mm. Um, mm. One, because their schedule is so demanding and two, because it's actually quite hard to sleep in zero gravity. A lot of people find mm. it takes them getting used to. Plus they had colds as well. I mean, a cold's mm. bad enough in gravity when it when all, all the kind of mucus and snot wants to come out and out yeah. of the system but when it's in your zero gravity it's just floating in the middle of your head oh. that must be terrible I've, I've just come up, come out of a, a, a nasty sinus blockage and, and I know how that feels yeah it's terrible but one of the other things I, things I was actually thinking about when I was reading um, your feature is was the the fact that the, the Apollo program operated as a sort of collective memory because if you look at the Apollo 7 mission and it was supposed to be practice mm. but the people who were carrying out these practical practices weren't the same people who were then going to do it the next time and the time mm. after that. Yeah. So it's like you have different individual human beings doing practicing for something that another group of individual human beings is going to do. Yeah. Like Apollo 11, the Apollo program was just this kind of collective memory where practice only was only relative to the mission itself. It's That's, kind of, that was one of the things that kind of like shocked me when I was looking through is the number of astronauts who flew to Apollo missions is ridiculously small. There's mm, only like mm. a couple. I can't remember exactly how many, but it's yeah. As that you said, fed back into the training, though, their experience. Yeah. When they, they had a very, they had very long debriefs after the after each mission, and then you know they took the notes and then fed that back into the training session. So you know the, the subsequent um, Apollo astronauts on future missions, when they were doing their their tests in the mock-ups. Back in the in the in the hangars and the, the training um, mm. camps in Houston and stuff, they they were able then to feed that in and you know hit the right switches and know that you know this this might go off mm. this this beeper might might sound at a certain moment mm. ignore that you know <laughs> that, yeah like we like happened with um, Neil Armstrong on the yeah. as he was coming in on the on the lunar surface yeah it's just amazing though isn't it because that Apollo Seven was the first mission the first manned mission after Apollo One. Which was the the disaster, yes. or yeah. the, the tragedy on the on the launch pad? So yeah, so that was when there has um, an element of kind of bravery in there, wasn't it? The, yeah, there was the, uh, Apollo One uh, was supposed to just be a something called a plugs out test, mm. um, and unfortunately the the module caught fire, which was partly due to an electrical fault and partly due to the fact that we were breathing almost pure oxygen. Um, mm. which is, you know, breeding grounds for a fire, and yes. unfortunately killed all three astronauts and <laughs> yeah. led to a 20-month delay for the rest yes. of the missions. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. But that was the other thing, just kind of reading back about Apollo 7, was the the uh, pace of the, the Apollo program. So Apollo 7 launched 
on the 11th of October 1968. And in July the following year, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. I know. That's crazy. It's... I mean... Uh, that's just saying, none, none of this was ever, had ever been done before. Yeah. I know. Whereas yeah, the pace is a lot amazing. slower nowadays for a kind of space it's, yeah. it's also It's when you're like looking at the sort of, like the pictures of the technology and you just realise just how basic this stuff was you know like there's like these racks of switches and and buttons and things and you mm. know alarms going off like right in center and you know ring binders filled with what all of these different codes and things means and yeah. it's just it's it's boggling really the boggling it's incredible isn't it yeah um and, and there was something else wasn't there that, um this month that you 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 were we were talking about quite a lot yeah um so related to space to talk, talking about astronauts not being happy in space um <laughs> There was recently, uh, they found a hole in the ISS. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Which yeah. is, there's at the, at the moment, um, things might have changed by now, there's, they think it was caused by a, uh, it was, it was a, f- a hole found in the Soyuz module. Mm. And the current leading theory is that there was a mistake made on Earth. Um, there was a time when they were thinking that it might have been one of the astronauts going stir crazy and deciding mm. to drill a hole in their spacecraft um, mm. so that they could get to go home. But... Personally, if I was an astronaut and I wanted to go home, I would think of a better way than drilling a hole in the side of my spaceship so that I, you know. (laughs) So that seems a bit dangerous. Yeah. Your, your lifeboat, yeah, you scupper your lifeboat yeah. so you can come home. It doesn't quite make sense, yeah. they, they did manage to fix that, though. Mm. I was quite mm. surprised by it because they, it was like a, it was a two millimetre <laughs> hole, which, like, if you see the photos, it's it's not a small hole. No, it's not, mm. is it? Yeah. But they said it was like it was such a slow leak that it would still take, like, 18 days to... Mm. Um, for for them to run out of air, and it, mm. it kind of like puts paid to all of those sci-fi movies yeah. and novels. But did it where, puncture where the, a tiny Did hole. it puncture the the exterior? They, was, they were leaking from, as far as I can tell, they were leaking air into space. Really? Yes. Um, because they said that, like, apparently Alexander Gerst, when he first saw it, he did what most people would do, which was he plugged it with his finger. Um, <laughs> you know, only for like a couple of seconds, yeah. but that means that he was the first person to yeah. to sort of touch the vacuum of space with his yeah. bare hands. Well, wow. that's cool. I know, right? <laughs> first, first a finger, then gaffer tape. Yes. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, they, they sort of fixed it with a boxy resin at the end. <laughs> but it has gone right to the top, hasn't it? I yes. saw that um, uh, the NASA chief administrator has had a conversation with um, the director general of Roscosmos, the Russian yeah. um, space agency, um, to kind of just chat about you know what's what's going to what's going to be happening and how the, how the investigations going and stuff like that so doubt we'll, uh, doubtless we'll, we'll hear more about mm. that as uh, as time goes on definitely yeah. yeah yes yeah outside all that excitement happening in orbit i um one of the things i was taken um, by in the, in this month's magazine is is our feature on um stargazing on looking up at the night sky from from the earth and um We've got this great feature in the issue this month, um, which is 15 things um, all stargazers should know. And it's basically it's, it's designed to encourage um, beginners and newcomers to the hobby um, to get out there and just look up. Just That's one of the key things, I think, um, to getting to know the night sky is, is to take that first step. And it can be quite daunting because it... Yeah. It's you know sometimes you, you're out there in a dark site and there's loads above you you don't know where to begin so this is this is easy steps easy entries to to beginning someone that so how to find some of the brightest things in the night sky signposts to help you find your way around um, familiar sites to look out for that you'll be able to come back to and and be able to kind of navigate and find your way mm. in the night sky so um, also a bit of advice on mid-year 
watching and uh, Aurora. Yes, yeah, yeah, some of those well. great things in the, in, uh, in the night sky to see. Um, Aurora's great and some of the, some of the brighter and more um, energetic meter showers out there. Mm. Um, so one of the things that really struck home with me, and I remember when I um, you know, first started stargazing, uh, one of the things I, I did do was um, let my eyes get used to the dark. And now I do it all the time, and it's so it makes such a great difference. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, you, all you need to do is just um, the first twenty minutes or so. You just need to be aware that you won't your eyes won't take in as much light um, as they will after twenty minutes or so. Once they've once your body's had a chance to make those physiological changes, your iris is um, getting getting narrower and your pupils expanding mm. um you let you take in more light and you're able to see more um so you know most people just kind of wait 20 minutes when they get out there um for that to happen yeah. you can go to extremes and and where you know if you're going to go if you know you're going to go stargazing that night you've seen the forecast it's clear and you know the seeing's quite good um you know, you can go to extremes and just wear dark glasses all day, mm. Um, mm. You know, and just and just you know, don't worry about your colleagues at work or whatever who's like, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, some people, some people do do that. You know, some people are that serious. You might, you might get the bug and, and think that's that's how to do it. But you know, all you need to do is just wait twenty minutes um, for your eyes to become dark adapted when you first start going out. So. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The, the other thing I've been kind of noticing recently, because it's been getting a bit darker at nights, so I've actually been going out with the binoculars. And one of the things I've mm. really noticed is is the averted vision technique. Um, which kind of, when you read it on paper, you kind of think, uh, well, I should suppose I should probably actually explain what it is. It's if, if you look slightly away from um, the star, not directly at it, it appears brighter. Mm. Uh, I guess it must be some kind of evolutionary thing where we, our peripheral vision is it's, stronger. It's because the, the center of your retina um, is mostly to do with color, mm. whereas the mm. edges are the rods, I think, which are to mm. do with um, light and dark. Okay. So because... There's not much colour in space. You're just looking for the difference between light and dark. So that's why if you look on the edge of your eye, it looks a bit clearer. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. and, and rods and cones are the other kind of shape, the, sh- the rough shape of the yeah. nerve endings at the, on your on your retina at the back of your eyeball, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. Little biology lesson for you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that kind of brings us on nicely to uh, this month's um, 
interview because I've been speaking to uh, Guy Consolmagno, or brother Guy Consolmagno, I should say. He's a, an astronomer, a Jesuit brother, and also director of the Vatican Observatory. Um, and he's co-author of um, the, the Astronomy Guide, uh, Turn Left at Orion, which was originally published in 1989, and it's now being published again for its fifth edition. So it's obviously quite a quite a popular guide. Um, but yeah, I spoke to him this um, this week, and we uh, we talked about uh, the history and the, the current work of the Vatican Observatory. But I started off by asking him his best stargazing advice for beginners. What's your your best piece of advice for for someone who's starting the their uh, journey in in astronomy? Go outside and look. <laughs> really, <laughs> nothing beats just being outside and being familiar with the sky, and. You'd be shocked at how many people don't even know how to find the moon. My God, it's I, I teach a class for an online class for high school kids. And one of the tasks I have them to do is once a week, go out, find the moon. Tell me where you saw it, when you saw it, what it looks like. And there'll be about a quarter of the kids who are describing things that are impossible, like, you know, a, a thin crescent moon at midnight over to the north. <laughs> people just need to get out and use your eyes. Only when you have an idea of what you're looking at, then get a book that will help you along. And to be honest, the first book you should get isn't even mine. Uh, it's probably H.A. Ray's book that shows you the constellations like Connect the Dot Pictures, because that will let you recognize things in the sky. Once you know the naked eye sky, once you are familiar with the sky that you've seen over and over again, then you can get the books that will teach you what the constellations are, like H.A. Ray's book that shows you the connect the dot pictures. And then once you know the constellations and you're really comfortable with that, then that makes using our book on how to find things with a telescope a whole lot easier to use. Mm. Yeah, one of the questions we often get asked uh, on the magazine is, what's the best telescope that, that complete beginners should start with? And, and quite often we kind of say, maybe you shouldn't start with a telescope. Where do you kind of stand, stand on that? Absolutely. Don't start with a telescope. If the sky and the stars themselves are not fascinating enough that you want to go out and see them as much as you can, then you're wasting your money on a telescope because... You won't. The telescope will wind up gathering dust. Mm. Do you think that it's it's maybe something hundreds of years ago people would have been more connected to the sky, but but now with big cities and industrialization and, and light pollution, we, we've we've kind of lost something along the way. Oh my goodness! Don't even get me started on light pollution. <laughs> uh, absolutely true, and even in our lifetime, um, you know, I, I wrote this book, "Turn Left at Orion," with Dan Davis, and. He learned astronomy from a suburb of New York, Yonkers. And we wrote the first edition with observations that he made uh, across the river from Yonkers in New Jersey, where you could see the George Washington Bridge, you know, look in one direction, but you could still see the sky. Hmm. And that was 30 odd years ago. And it's gotten worse even then. Um, Pope Benedict had this wonderful homily, to, to, to throw in a little bit of, of religion here, that uh, the Easter Sunday, the Mass and Midnight, is a big deal with candles, and it's like the light coming into the world. It's a springtime you know, festival. And he says, you know, the, the stars are God's lights, but we, in our human pride, blot them out with our own light. And, and what, what a wonderful metaphor for sin that is. And I turned it right the other way around saying light pollution is a sin. It's <laughs> blotting out what we ought to be seeing with 
let's face it, crappy light that we're putting up ourselves. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned your uh, co-writer um, and friend Dan there. Is, is that the same Dan that got, got you into astronomy when you were teaching physics in Africa? Because, because there's, there, there's a lovely story that I, that I heard. I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the same Dan. Um, it was very funny. I met Dan when I was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and he was a grad student. We're walking home um, across the Harvard Bridge, which is nowhere near Harvard, over the, the Charles River, and chatting about our lives and our background. And he'd mentioned that his wife was British. And I said, oh, you know, in my dreams, I always thought the girl I'd married would be British. I'd, I'd read too many Arthur Ransom books, you know. <laughs> and... And he joked and he said, well, when he was growing up, he was always thought that he was going to be a Jesuit astronomer. And a couple of years later, I become the Jesuit astronomer. <laughs> but before we got there, um, I had gone to Africa in the Peace Corps and there was a change in job that meant I had to come back for a month to the States to get new stuff. I'm visiting Dan, living in uh, New York City at the time. And he says, you've got to take a small telescope with you. So we go into town, we buy this little C90 uh, Celestron telescope that fits in a suitcase, and I still have it. It's still in my room here, 30-odd years later. And we set it up in his backyard, and he says, all right, let's look at Alberio. And I go, hmm? Because I had the HRA book, and I knew about five things. I knew where M13 was and, and a couple of the bigger you know, galaxies that you can almost see with the naked eye in a dark sky. But I had no idea really what double stars were like. And he shows me the easiest and most colorful double star, and I'm blown away. <laughs> and then I go off to Africa with a telescope, and I realize Dan and his family are back in America. I could use him right now. <laughs> and the entire time I was there, I was desperate for a book that would do for me what the H.A. Ray book had done in terms of teaching me as a kid to how to find the constellations. Mm. And so when I came back to America, I said, we got to write this book because I need this book. And uh, it was in the early days of the Internet and the early days of computers. I had one of the very, very first Macintoshes with a screen about the size of a postage stamp. And we laid out the original version of the book on this thing. I'd write up all oh, this is what to look for. He would tell me what objects we should use. I would write up what it's like to find them. He would come back and say, actually, that's not what they look like. And we'd go back and forth. And it took us about three or four years. But it was a delight because it introduced me to the sky. And it also got me to figure out how do I find these things? Because I'm a raw beginner. I can explain to everybody else using the book who's a raw beginner. Dan's the expert. He's been looking at these things since he was a kid. Hmm. I'm the guy who's in the position of anyone who picks up the book and has never really tried to point a telescope at anything in the sky before. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not that the fact that you wrote it as a beginner is one of the reasons why it's it's so enduring because it's um, now in its fifth edition, isn't it? I mean, what, it. why do you think Turn Left at Orion has been so popular? It, it's exactly <laughs> that. It was written by somebody who needs it himself. <laughs> um, I've written a, a science textbook, you know, in my day job, I'm a planetary scientist and uh, wrote a textbook with a co-author, a wonderful planetary scientist, uh, Martha Schaefer. And she was an expert on Mars and I'm an expert on the icy moons. And we realized we had to write each other's chapters mm. because she knows too much about Mars. She doesn't know what the beginner doesn't know. And I'm the same way with the moons of Jupiter. 
you need a beginner in some ways to be in the process of learning so that you can help. That's why you go to school rather than trying to learn things on your own, because the, the poor person in the chair next to you can also be there to help you through in the parts that maybe she just figured out yesterday and she can now help you today. Hmm. But I mean, you've obviously come a long way from from those early days of, um, you know, you, you, when you're taking your first steps to looking at the night sky, because because you're now the, the director of the Vatican Observatory. And, and, and you, as you say, you've you've written, you know, books on, on planetary science. How, how, how did the kind of subsequent years since your your introduction pan out? How, how, how did you come to to yeah, such a high, high position in in, uh, in the world of astronomy? Well, it's a, a terrible secret. Most professional astronomers get lost when they look up at the nighttime sky. Hmm. They go into a professional telescope, they type in the coordinates. I do this myself. That's why go-to telescopes are no fun for me. It's work. But the, but the, you know, the computer does, or even the setting circles, or that's what you know. Mm-hmm. It's unusual, but really valuable for a professional astronomer to also be an amateur astronomer. I, I say it's like somebody who you know drives a ferry across a river for a living and then has a rowboat that they go out and use in the weekend. Mm-hmm. They're both boats, but they're totally different experiences. And I certainly had become in love with astronomy by knowing the constellations, you know, which my father taught me. He, he'd learned them in World War II as a navigator and a bomber. I learned the constellations and fell in love with the sky, but I fell in love with planetary science in a completely different route, Uh, and that was science fiction. I I was visiting a friend of mine at MIT and discovered they had the world's biggest science fiction library, and I said, I've got to come here to read science fiction, and uh, and I'm going to study planets because planets are places where people have adventures. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I got my degree at MIT, did my work on icy moons, uh, continued doing that at Arizona. And then I was back in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard and MIT, which is where I met Dan. But I had this interesting crisis of faith. And anybody who's been accused of spending too much time at the telescope can relate to this, I think. I'd be lying at bed wondering, I'm making my living as an astronomer, but what an entirely useless thing this is. It's not going to make anybody rich. wasn't making me rich. It's not going to give anybody power. You know, didn't make me powerful. And it's not going to get your girls. It certainly wasn't doing that for me. <laughs> Why am I doing this? And what's more, what good is this to the rest of the world? How could I, I – there are people starving in the world. Why am I wasting my time doing astronomy? And so I quit. And I joined the U.S. Peace Corps which is why I was in Africa with the dark skies and telling my friend Dan, oh, you can see all these stars, and he got me to buy the telescope. But while I'm in Africa, and certainly after I have the telescope, I'm going up country every weekend to visit friends who are teaching in remote villages where there is poverty, where there is starvation, where there is a lot of hunger. But everybody in the village wants to come out and look through the telescope. And everybody in the village wants to come out and hear my stories of, you know, what NASA has discovered in the moons of Jupiter. And everybody in the village wants to be part of it. And you see the look of joy when they see the craters on the moon for the first time. And you see the look of astonishment when they see the rings of Saturn. And then it hit me. 
You know, I had a very clever cat in those days, but my cat never wanted to look through the telescope. Looking through a telescope is something human beings do. It's something that makes us more than just well-fed animals. It's something that reminds us that we have a soul, that we have a mind, that we have a spirit, that we have things beyond our bellies that need to be fed because we do not live by bread alone. I, I read that someplace. <laughs> and, and it's literally true because on top of it, once people anywhere realize that they too can take part in understanding the universe, that they can see the galaxies that people are using to try to figure out the Hubble constant, even if you can't you know, do the measurements that the professionals do, you can at least know what they're talking about because you can see them yourself. <laughs> then it gives you this confidence that I'm as good as the rest of the world. I can solve these problems just because I'm growing up in a little village in Africa doesn't mean that I couldn't do it. Just as I could say, because I grew up in a little village in you know, the thumb of Michigan, didn't mean that I could not someday be a, a published astronomer. You know, write articles that people will argue with me about. This is great. When I came back from the Peace Corps, I taught for four years at a little college, loved it. And I said, this is what I want to do. Um, at that point, I'd broken up with yet another girlfriend, and I'm thinking, what do I do with my life? I thought, if I joined the Jesuit order, and they've got universities and high schools all across America, they can you know, find a place for me to teach. This will be great. Unfortunately, when you join the Jesuit order, even as a brother, not as a priest, you still take these three vows to be in a religious community. Uh, poverty, chastity, obedience. So I don't own the telescope. The community owns the telescope. They let me use it. Um, <clears throat> chastity. I don't have a girlfriend. Well, I wasn't having a girlfriend before then, so that was no different. <laughs> Obedience was the tough one. Obedience meant that they send you and you say yes. You can, you can argue, but at the end of the day, you say yes. So I wanted to teach at a little university in America, but they ordered me under obedience that I had to go to Rome, live in the papal palace, eat that terrible Italian food, Look at that horrible scenery. Oh, yeah, they happen to have a collection of more than a thousand meteorites, which is what my research had been centered on by then. And, you know, I had to obey. What could I do? So I've been there 25 years. And uh, three years ago, Pope Francis said, we, you know, time for a new director. You're the guy in line for the job. So here I am. <laughs> so what does the Vatican Observatory actually do? And I mean, how, how old is it? When, when was it established? And is it actually located in the, in the Vatican? It is and it is and it is, yes. Um, <laughs> we claim to go back to the reform of the calendar in 1582. After all, the Gregorian calendar was named for Pope Gregory uh, and Jesuits were involved. They're the people who run these schools they were involved in helping to work out the mathematics of how they were going to change the calendar ever so slightly so that uh, we don't you know, have too many days in a, in a year anymore. Um, the modern observatory was established in 1891 by Pope Leo XIII, and he had two goals. The one overt goal was to show the world that the church loves science. And I always get frustrated when people think that there's a conflict between science and religion because, number one, I've never experienced that. I have no idea what they're talking about. And number two, if you know anything about your history, you realize that, you know, 
Newton was a deeply religious man. I think his theology was crazy, but he was deeply religious. And Kepler was a deeply religious man. And even Galileo was, you know, he could have just walked away from Italy and gotten a job up in the Netherlands. But no, he really wanted to support the church. And even when the church incorrectly ordered him to stop publishing his work, um, you know, told him to go home and stay home, he obeyed. He didn't have to. He could have run away, and he didn't. Um, most of science is data collecting. It's like stamp collecting. It's keeping track of data. It's using Excel spreadsheets. It's clerical work. And, and why do they call it clerical? Because it was originally done by clerics, by the clergy. In the old days, who had the free time to do science in the middle of the week and the education to know what they were doing? So anyway, this all leads into why at the end of the 19th century, there was a new crazy idea based mostly on politics that uh, religion and science were opposed and it was especially popular among people who had a political reason to want to make sure that those Catholics didn't have power, whether it was the Irish in Great Britain or the immigrants from Italy and uh, Poland coming into the Americas. It was really an anti-immigrant lie that was spread out there. Well, you can't trust these people because after all, they're Catholics. Total, total nonsense. Mm -hmm. And yet we still see these same anti-immigrant fervors going on in the world today. And it's a human sin that's never going to go away. The other thing that made the Vatican astronomy be turned into a national observatory was at the end of the 19th century, the Vatican had been reduced to just the area around St. Peter's. And they were desperate to show they were an independent nation with an independent uh Coins, they had their own coins, they had their own postage stamps, and they had their own national observatory that was recognized as a national observatory by other national observatories. So one of the first things they did was to get involved in a big program called the Carte du Ciel, where they had a little sliver of the sky along with every other national observatory. They're going to photograph this and make the world's first photographic atlas of stars and star positions. They started this in 1891. Finally, the world gave up in 1950 after a couple of world wars. But the Vatican, they actually completed their section of that. From there, another thing that built into this, it really happened in the 1930s, was taking spectra. Instead of asking where are the stars, like in a catalog, you ask what are the stars? The first guy to do that was a Jesuit priest in Rome, a fellow named Angelo Secchi, born 200 years ago in 1818. And he was came from a physics background. So rather than just doing the same mapping orbits, he was the first guy who started asking what he, he did spectra of stars and classified them by their spectra and identified lines of carbon and stars. He looked at the surfaces of the planets. He's the guy who first used the word canale to describe the dark features on Mars. The things he was looking at are real. Anybody can see them. They're not the canals of Percival Lowell, you know, a generation later. And so with this background in spectroscopy, at the Vatican Observatory in the 1930s and 40s, they set up a spectrolab to publish catalogs of the spectral lines of every pure metal. And they even founded a journal, Spectrochemica Acta, that was published at the Vatican at that time. It's now one of the big Elsevier journals. 
Nowadays, there's a dozen of us. We come from five continents. We speak a dozen languages. We come from every corner of astronomy. But we've all got our PhDs from a different place. We all have our own set of colleagues and uh, friends and places where we will publish. And the work ranges from uh, a fellow from Africa, Jean-Baptiste Kikwaya, who's an expert in meteors and trying to work out from the flash of light, what's their density, what's their chemical composition, where did they come from? So the tiniest things in space. Do we have people working like uh, Don Alessandro Omazzolo, an Italian who is interested in galaxies and what he calls jellyfish galaxies, galaxies w which collide? Uh, Richard D'Souza, who's an Indian working on uh, the, the halo of stars around galaxies. He just came up with an idea that was in Nature uh, a couple of months ago that I believe it's M33, one of the satellites of the Andromeda galaxy, is actually the nucleus of a, a large galaxy that collided with Andromeda a long time ago. Mm. It's probably M32, M32 or M33. I always get the two confused. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, actually, M33 is the... the uh, the Triangulum Galaxy. So it's M32. Better be M32. Never mind. That's <laughs> what happens when you try to do these things on by memory. Uh, and leave the mistake in to show people, yeah, you can make mistakes even when you've written the book. That's why I need the book. Um, and, and we've got, you know, somebody working on cosmology, the Big Bang, uh, quantum gravity. People remember, of course, that the Big Bang theory itself was invented by a Belgian priest, Georges Lemaitre. A hundred years ago. So it's very natural stuff for us to be working in. The one, one thread, if I could just finish, all the work we do tends to be long-term research, surveys that take 10 or 20 years. It's hard to get funded when you only get funded in a three-year cycle mm. to do a 20-year survey. So we do the work that complements the work of our colleagues and our friends. And then we all go to the same meetings, publish in the same papers, take part in the same journals, the same societies. And we can add what we can to a field that needs both the grand new ideas and the long-term surveys. I know that people people listening to this will be will be very um, fascinated to hear um, about all the work that, that you and, and your colleagues are doing. But I know that they'll also be dying to hear what's what's your actual setup. What what sort of telescopes do you use, and and it, and is it actually located in the Vatican City? Because I, I would have thought that you know being effectively in the middle of Rome, you you, you would have problems with, with light light pollution. Absolutely, <laughs> uh, the light pollution is already horrible by the nineteen twenties. The original telescopes in 1891 were on the wall of the Vatican, but that was before Rome was electrified. Okay. Uh, by the 1930s, the telescopes were moved, uh, several new telescopes were built on the Pope's summer home, which is out in Castel Gandolfo, and it's about 30 kilometers outside of Rome and the hills, much cleaner air in those days, much darker. Uh, and in the 1950s, they put in a really nice Schmidt telescope as well. But by about 1980, the light pollution even made that impossible. Mm -hmm. At that point, the director was an American, George Coyne, who had contacts at the University of Arizona, ironically, where I'd been a grad student. I'd known him then. And he did a deal. He said, let's buy a house in Tucson, Arizona, rent offices in the Stewart Observatory of the university. So we'll be members of the, you know, the, the, the department, but they don't have to pay us. We pay you. And we'll get access 
to Arizona's telescopes. Now, the University of Arizona in Tucson is surrounded by telescopes. I can't even count the you know, 50, 75 telescopes. Every mountain's got a collection of telescopes on it. And this worked really great for a few years. But then a guy at the University of Arizona, Roger Angel, came up with the idea that if you have molten glass in an oven that is spinning, the glass forms itself into the shape of a parabola, and you can make a telescope mirror as big as you want, depending on how big your, your furnace is. He made one. It worked great. He gave it to the Vatican, and we built a telescope around their mirror. So our main research telescope is a telescope that was the first spin-cast mirror telescope, and it's now on Mount Graham, about four hours outside of Tucson. So 1.8 meter, it's small, but you do fun things with small telescopes. You make discoveries with small telescopes. And one of the great things is they said, let's spit it up as fast as we can, and it's an F1 mirror. The focal point is the same distance as the width of the mirror itself. It's just remarkable. It, uh, the optics are incredible. The sky where it's located is incredible. You're far away from many city lights. And we've done a lot of great survey work with that. Um, my own work, for instance, was to use that to look at objects out beyond Neptune, trans-Neptunian objects, just measure their colors in broad colors, red, green, blue. We're looking at objects that are 21st magnitude. And you can get a good color in five minutes. Incredible. And after doing a survey of about 40 of these, we found a pattern that half of them are very red, half of them are gray, and there's hardly any in between. Using that data, we then went and said, could we use the Keck telescope, the biggest in the world, the one out in, in Hawaii, to look for you know, fader objects? So we have our own telescope. The workhorse is this one in, in Arizona. And I'm actually speaking to you today from Tucson, Arizona. But we still have the headquarters out in Casta Gandolfo, where we've got the meteorites, where we've got um, a wonderful library. The Vatican Library gave us all of their modern science books. To them, modern means printed with a printing press. <laughs> and also, we still have four telescopes there dating from the 1930s, including the original 1891 Carte du Ciel telescope, recently renovated. You can look through it and with these marvelous you know, 1890 optics, see details on the planets and, and just have a great time as an astro tourist. Absolutely fantastic. Um, it, it, it's just been absolutely amazing uh, hearing about uh, all, all the work that you and your colleagues do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this will, this will be kind of news to a lot of people and hopefully it'll inspire lots of people to, to find out more about what the uh, Vatican Observatory and you and your colleagues do. Okay, there's two things I'd recommend. Our yes. website, you know, vaticanobservatory.va, because we're in the Vatican. Okay. <laughs> or if you can't remember that much, I'm sure you guys can put the links to this. I'll just go to Google on The Catholic Astronomer. And this is a website with a new article every day on some aspect of astronomy, whether it's what's in the sky or what's new going on in planetary probes or reflections of uh, priests who are also amateur astronomers, the whole gamut. But there are fascinating articles, and there are links from there to a faith and astronomy site, to workshops that we do, to summer schools that we hold, to tours of Rome 
that we run every now and then so you can, you know, get into the back door and see where did Angelo Secchi do his observing, stuff like that. We've got a big web presence. Just Google us and you'll find us. Brilliant. Thanks very much um, for, for the advice. And, and, and once again, thanks very much for sharing the story of the Vatican Observatory. Um, Brother Guy, it's been an absolute uh, honor and privilege to talk to you. Thank, uh, thank you for speaking to me today. It's been great talking to you guys. And thank you for the work you do. Get people to look up and realize there's more to life than what's for lunch. That was Guy Consolmagno. You can get even more stargazing advice on our website, www.skynightmagazine.com or in the October issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. As always, there's lots to see in the night sky this month, and you can read all about it in this issue's Sky Guide. But if there's one thing that you really should see in the October night sky, it's the Andromeda Galaxy. If you can find your way to a dark sky around the time of the new moon on the 9th of October, then you should be able to see the Milky Way sister galaxy for yourself. To find it, find the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia and use the right half as an arrow to point the way. Follow the arrow until you reach the bright star Mirac. Then backtrack a short way, veering slightly to the right, until you see the dimmer stars Mu and New Andromedae. You should be able to make out the fuzzy oval of Andromeda. What you're seeing is a galaxy 2.5 million light years away. It's the collected light of over a trillion stars, most of which have planetary systems around them. So who knows? Maybe there's somebody out there looking back. So that's it from us this month. To find out more about the Apollo missions, you can pick up the Apollo Story Special Edition, on sale now. If you want to find out about the other things that we've discussed in this month's episode, then pick up the October issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. Where we'll also tell you how to make the most of the Milky Way and all its wide-filled wonder, take a trip around the rings of the solar system, and find out how to get scientific values out of your images of atmospheric phenomena like aurora. And not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.